1: Welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking uh, with Dr. Alexander Uskokov, who is a Sanskrit lecturer uh, in the South Asian Studies Council at Yale University. We will be speaking about a brand new Bloomsbury academic publication called The Philosophy of the Brahma Sutra An Introduction. Alexander, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Raj. Uh, uh, pleasure to be here.
1: Yes. So this little, teeny, tiny, obscure text called the Brahma Sutra. <laughs> um,
0: could you tell us a
1: little bit? It's certainly a foundational text in in in, um, in the Indic world. But could you tell us a little bit about um, the, the text and its reach, and you know where it lives and 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 sort of how it functions?
0: Yes. Uh, yes. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so the Brahma Sutra is, as you said, a foundational text uh, for the, mm, I might call it the knowledge system of Vedanta, uh, which is a a tradition of Indian philosophy and theology based on the interpretation of the Upanishads. Uh, And by that much, it has kind of become one of the mm, canonical books of of Hinduism uh, since, maybe in the 17th, 18th century, it's closely associated with uh, the religious identity. Uh, as you said, it's a tiny, teeny book uh, in, in several ways. It's, a, it's part of the sutra genre of literature, which is in itself uh, predicated on short statements that are meant to summarize knowledge system. Um and it's a, a very typical genre in in Brahmanical writing, right? There are the well, philosophical sutras, the Yoga Sutras, Nyaya Vaisheshika, etc. But also ritual sutras, Dharma sutras, etc. So most knowledge systems in the Brahmanical world be, would be would have a, a book of of that genre. The Brahma Sutra is. Particular in that it is really terse, really short, uh, and uh, it's it's difficult often to understand it without uh, uh, a commentary. Traditionally, it has been attributed to Badarayana, uh, who is in fact one of the several authorities quoted in the text. There are seven of them as far as I remember right now. Uh, and we then to date the the, the book around 4th or 5th century uh, CE, although uh, that's probably more like its finalization. It's it's a text that has had some some history before that. Abadarayana becomes sometime around the end of the 10th, beginning of the 11th century, identified with Vyasa, uh, the most traditionally the Editor of the four Vedas, right, and the author of the Mahabharata and some of the most of the Puranic literature. So, then from that time onwards, Vedantins generally consider Badarayana to be Vyasa. Um, uh, uh, The Brahma Sutra, as I said, it's a a very terse, uh, cryptic work, uh, but in, in short, it is a book about. Primarily two things, Um, but Brahman, as the name suggests, right? It's a sutra or collection of statements on Brahman. The first principle, right? The origin of the world, that thing from which the world comes from, by which it is maintained and eventually reabsorbed into. Uh, And that that is sort of uh, Brahman is properly the topic of the work for about a half, the first half of the of the work and then it moves on to uh, the process of attaining the highest good one might say liberation from embodiment um and then ends in, in the description of how that liberation might might look like so uh, that in in brief would be the uh the what the brahma sutra is about
1: if you would be so all to conjecture. Perhaps why do you suspect? Why what? Why might might one suspect that the content is so uh, terse and perhaps cryptic?
0: Yes, it's a it's a very interesting question. Um, there are two major proposals that have been made by uh, by two various scholars, and I think think the answer might be might have to do something with with both. First, um, um, it it was intentionally written as an esoteric work, right? This is not a work that the the, the community behind expected that just anyone would read as we (laughs) do these days, right? So there's an understanding that there has to be some, as they call it, adhikara or competence for understanding the work. And that, that, of course, it's a major topic of the commentarial tradition, just who is qualified to read the work. And there's a very, as as you know, there are various disagreements on on that point. So that is probably one reason. But the second reason has to do with the, the, the functioning of the genre of sutra literature itself, and uh, Asko Patpola has, uh, has argued, and others before him, that uh, sutra literature is always predicated on some prior text, that there was originally some well, first Brahma Sutra, let's say, uh, but then subsequent uh, recensions of the work or appropriations by other authors, reuse, etc. Uh, work by way of uh, not simplification, I should say, condensation. So sutras through history tend to get shorter uh, when when they reuse material from 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 prior compositions. So that also perhaps contributes to to the brevity and terseness terseness of the work.
1: Do we have a sense of the life of the work today? or the ways in which it's drawn on.
0: Today, um, yes, we we do have some sense. Uh, First, I should say that commentaries uh, in Sanskrit continue to be written to this day. There was just a couple of, well, don't quote me on this, About a couple of years or maybe a decade ago that uh, the Swaminarayan tradition has come out with their own. Um, canonical, let's say, canonical commentary of the of, of the Brahma Sutra, I think, by one uh, Bhadresha Swami, something like that. Um, because it has kind of become the norm. If you are part of the tradition of Vedanta, well, you have to produce a commentary on the Brahma Sutra. It's sort of uh, a part of presenting yourself as being a part of that tradition. So that has happened relatively recently. Uh, And the Brahma Sutra, of course, continues to be uh, cited, read by most contemporary uh, brands of Hinduism, right? Uh, Vivekananda, Swami Vivekananda engaged extensively with the work, Uh, Paktivedanta Swami uh, also did. So it is still very much alive in that sense, though there has been uh, a tendency to focus some of its content, right? Uh, a good part of the work concerns uh, uh, somewhat, I shall I say, pedestrian systematization of specific Upanishadic passages to show how they're about Bra- Brahman, etc. That's part of books one and um, some of it, uh, uh, book two as well. So that has kind of tended to fall off from interest just because it's primarily very theological work. Um, but um, in general, it, it is very much uh, alive. Its reception is to be still ongoing.
1: Does the life of the Pramasutra primarily operate with within Vedantic exegesis or... Um, also other, uh, others among the darshanas? Um, part one and part two, um, are there particular strands of Vedanta that draw on it, or do the various divergent uh, contradictory visions of Vedanta equally draw on this text?
0: Uh, that's a very interesting and uh, complex question. Um, the, the work has become extremely influential uh, outside of what we tend to think of sort of the boundaries of Vedanta the, no, right, the, the, the classical schools of Advaita, Vishista Dvaita right, Dvaita, Veda Veda etc so it has definitely crossed beyond those borders but not as much in say other philosophical schools such as well it has into Sankhya definitely and in some in, into yoga as well um, where it has been most most influential would be literature such as the Bhagavata Purana, which uh, is of course one of the most important works in uh, for contemporary Hindus, um, uh, and it's, it's a work that expresses, expressly presents itself as a work on of Vedanta. In fact, begins with the same words as the Brahma Sutra. Um, so it has been influential very much there, th- and through the Bhagavata, uh, it has crossed into um, um, more uh, wider or, or streams of Hinduism. I mean, references to the Brahma Sutra, you know, you'll find them everywhere. Uh, um, if you say read the Mani Pravalam literature of the Sri Vaishnavas, which is primarily about. You know, the, the the bhakti and prapati, every once in a while you'll see a sutra cited uh, uh, there. So yeah, um it, it, it has been very much influential outside of the confines. Now um with respect to the the schools of Vedanta, I guess um one could say that. All of them, most of them are well supported by the the original text itself. I go um, somewhere in the first chapter to uh, arguing about there's some semantic potential that the work comes with such that it can accommodate various interpretations. They are not necessarily equally right, but they, they all stem from uh, what Badara and, and the uh, other authorities on Vedanta cited in the in the work um, say, um, and through through intellectual history again, it has uh, uh, its reception has been uh, well represented, not just in in a single school, but uh, uh, in in several of them. I hope that tackles some some of your question. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and
1: you you outline this very clearly in your first chapter that you know, within Vedanta there are of course um, uh, schools within the the Darshana. and there there, there is a, a mo, absolute monics, most monistic school, and there are those that are you know qualified monism or non absolute monism, and um, perhaps unsurprisingly, all of the strands, all of the schools invoke the Brahma Sutra as authority Indeed, on, so. uh, on, and, and perhaps the, perhaps it's the case of, that, um, that that work is so canonical and authoritative that for a tradition to be taken seriously and survive and thrive, it must say, hey, look, what we're seeing, our, our particular vision of, of, of the liberation of Vedanta
0: actually is rooted in this work. So it's... Yes. Yes. As you say exactly, it has been become sort of mandatory to to, to justify your uh, your doctrine uh, and to justify your doctrinal identity as being a Vedantin by by making an appeal to to the Brahma Sutra. Yes.
1: You um you you're probably well aware of this, but your book is exceptionally accessible, particularly in that it pertains to so potentially theoretical and um, niche (laughs) a topic. (laughs) And so I think a a great way forward is um, we can touch on the individual chapters and the ideas that present uh, uh, therein. So, uh, you know, the first one is about the receptive history, and we touched on that momentarily. And the second chapter called Philosophy, Theology, The Idea of Scripture.
0: Um, What's that chapter about? Yeah, uh, that is a chapter that tries to unpack uh, the sort of the epistemology of the Brahma Sutra or the epistemologies, as as many of your listeners will know, it's just the ways that we know what we know, right? And the reasons why we are justified to believe in what we uh, believe and the uh, the classical... Such
1: a timely deliberation.
0: That's right, yes. Indeed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is probably why it's one of the perennial issues, right? Um so um and the Brahma Sutra has uh, as you might expect, it has an epistemology of its own, which is expressed uh in the beginning. I think it's Sutra three, which says that the Upanishads or scripture more generally is the source of knowledge of Brahma, but it also comes in a in a tradition. Uh, in which many of the things that it does epistemologically are assumed or just generally recognized by the participants in the discourse while they're not necessarily by us as readers. So the chapter tries to, um, as as much as that is possible, lay that bare, right, to to see first, to understand what kind epistemologically, what kind of a, an intellectual process, pro, uh, 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 Product is the Brahma Sutra. And then I, I, I try to show that uh, two kinds of reasoning are, are, are employed there, what you know, one that may be called properly theological, which takes for granted that it, it is the Upanishads, so a scripture more generally, that is the way that we can know about, know about Brahman and things such as liberation, etc. Um, but employs various uh, canonical means of interpreting the punishments, right? They are inherited, most of them, from the tradition of Mimamsa. Uh, and so then I, I, I try to show as much as possible how that theological reasoning works in, in, in the Brahma Sutra. But then there is also uh, properly philosophical reasoning in the text that is predicated on what well, sort of in the European tradition has been called the function of natural reason, right? Uh, um, or, or reasoning in which we take our data from the world, right? And try to understand causal processes simply by by means of, of, uh, of inference. And there is a lot of that in the Brahma Sutra as well. So the Brahma Sutra has a theory of causality, uh, Etc. So then, I show how, I try to show how um, philosophical reasoning is involved. But in the second, that's sort of the first part of the chapter. In the second, in the second part of the chapter, I try to just understand the epistemological significance of that idea of scripture. What is it that when they mean scripture? Why should that be uh, the grounds for uh, uh, for justification? for for them to believe what they believe, or even for us to believe what uh, we believe. And then um, the drift of the chapter is to show that uh, our Vedantins, and the others in the intellectual milieu understood scripture to be something as epistemologically original or foundational, one might say, as perception itself, right? And so uh, that's a startling claim to make that scriptural knowledge, which is generally, we, we understand it to be testimonial in kind. It is not directly uh, epistemologically valid. It's always mediated by our trust into testimony, etc. But this is not what Vedantins and Mimamsakas think. They simply think that scripture has epistemic validity that is equally primitive foundation as that of our senses. So then I I try to unpack the significance uh, of that. So that's sort of the, the general drift of chapter two.
1: Yeah, I think one sort of avenue that perhaps colors the idea that revelation is one of the pramanas, the means of knowledge is revelation. It's it's further colored by the absence of what really what we think of as texts in the modern age of something written by someone for consumption by others and, and the idea of these works being uh, written residue of um, oral tradition and the text, uh, the idea that uh, shabda pramana, this was heard. This mm. is a porushea somehow this is this, right. this is an important distinction that this is um a, a pora unauthored the, the this idea that there isn't this mediating agency it's sort of a sort of rather fascinating distinction with how the very notion of text uh arises yeah I,
0: yeah. I think it can be also very productive into the ways that we sort of try to understand um Say justice, right? In in our in in our contemporary and society, it's self-evident. So it should be self-evident, but also never humanly inflected, right? It should work by itself, right? Uh, it, it's not a judge that makes justice something is just because it is, right? By that much, it's not. It shouldn't be personally uh, 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 modulated, and I think that's a, It's a. In that sense, although you know, it can have. Various social uh, consequences, but I think uh, it's uh, in some ways, it's a brilliant idea.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really fascinating um, parallel that I hadn't per- I hadn't uh, considered, and, and I love parallels and analogies because um, I suppose the the hat I wear the most and, and probably enjoy the most is teaching in different contexts and conveying some of the textual tradition, mostly in continuing studies, but I do love undergrad teaching as well and this idea that um obviously up for debate the idea that when someone has a sense of justice or a sense of being wronged it's, it's almost such that one doesn't need to be taught that someone hits you upside the head <laughs> you That's right. Exactly. The, the instinct is sort of like what's that for but yeah wow. this isn't fair what, what's happened here and and the sort of the comparison of well the sense of Arriving at a sense of justice doesn't come through um, uh, anumana or pratyaksha. It doesn't come through, uh, what would one say, direct perception of phenomenal reality necessarily, and doesn't come from inference. It's far more instinctual. So uh, that's a fascinating corollary. I think I probably will borrow it at some point. Right. Speaking of um, the teaching hat, one of the things I really enjoy about the, the, the book is that it's a teaching tool and that's evident because after at the end of every chapter, what do we have? Suggestions for further study and study questions, provocative mm-hmm. questions for thought experiments or maybe essays. Or So so, so this is something that one doesn't quite perceive in, um, until one dives into this introduction. It's more than an introduction. It really is a study guide in many ways, I'd say. Mm-hmm. So. What do you, um, what are some of the, subst- uh, how do I phrase this? What, what strike you as some of the most intriguing aspects of what the, the, what the work is positing or the philosophy, theology, the vision, you know, what, what sort of, what has stayed with you? What do you find to be fascinating about its, its, what it's advocating about
0: reality and humanity? Oh, that's a very difficult question for me (laughs) in that I've been uh, engaged with this text for so long that uh, singling out tends to Mm. be uh, difficult. Um, I don't know, maybe just the coherence of the system Um, if if one may uh, put it in those words. I'm by way of disclosure, I am a skinnerian in my methodological approach. and skinnerian, I mean Quentin Skinner uh, and his approach to the study of texts as uh, and the history of ideas as as uh, as speech acts. Right. So um, my greatest fascination with the work is just how coherent it is. Right, and I. So I see myself, why I started my academic journey as a historian of philosophy. So for me, the greatest fascination is to understand the work, just what it is saying, right? What kind of a worldview it is presenting and find that it is coherent, right? So there, in the Brahma Sutra, there are some loose ends, otherwise the tradition wouldn't be able to develop, right? Uh, but it's a, it's an impressively coherent work. So I think that has been something that I've greatly enjoyed, trying to understand that uh, coherent worldview. I'm not sure that I answered your question entirely, uh, the, my, but... uh,
1: my questions are always meant to be generative, whatever comes to mind. I'm not looking mm. for a particular answer, typically, much more often than not. Um, but just by way of introduction to some of the, the worldview or the vision, many of the listeners may be well aware, uh, many not, but what is the vision of Brahman and how is it related to the individual or the jivatman? or s- say a bit about that vision, perhaps?
0: Yes. So Brahman is, uh, as the work opens, it is the first principle, as we call it in philosophy, since sort of uh, the days of Aristotle onwards. Uh, it is the the, the the world is ultimately reducible to Brahman in some sense, which means the world comes from Brahman. And in the Brahma Sutra and going back to the Upanishads, that means that it's also maintained, guided as a, as a, as a sentient principle by Brahman, and ultimately it is uh, resolved back into Brahman. But that is too uh, of of a tradition of Vedanta. That is too general, right? It doesn't really tell us much specific about Brahman. So part of Badrayana's pr- program, one might say, especially in in, in the third chapter of, of the Brahma Sutra is to lay out or to flesh a, out the a, a, a more uh, complete definition of Brahman. And that would be that it is a, a sentient conscious principle and that is ultimately a blissful principle. So... Uh, uh, and the, sort of that draws on the famous statement in, in the Taitiriya Upanishad, that Nuntam, Brahma, and uh, uh, that Brahman is consciousness, bliss, limitless, etc. So, uh, and, then, and that is the starting point. And then there is something called the world, right? Uh, the world that we know it, <laughs> it's empirically available to us. If it comes from Brahman, then it is there. So one of the most important questions of the Brahma Sutra is then if Brahman is the single first principle, which is a very specific argument that's sort of made against uh, nayayikas of the time of vaisheshikas or Sankyas in which the first principles are many, right? Uh, or plural, let's say, if they're not many, in, in Vedanta, the argument, it is one. So then a question, and a very important question becomes, well, what is the relation of the world to Brahman, right? If the Brahman is a single principle and how does then one might intellectually uh, uh, present a coherent theory of causality? And there is also something that you mentioned that's called individual soul, right? So if Brahman is the first principle, And then there are individual souls and what's the relationship between Brahman and the individual soul, such that it can be still just the single principle. And these things need to be worked out. And that is what Badarayana does. And I think I I try to show in the book that um, it does not work in the identical way for Badarayana between say Brahman and the world, what's called in Sankhya Prakriti or prime matter. On the one hand, and the souls uh, on the other, uh, Badarana has different ideas about them. He needs to uh, the world never the, the soul never originates properly from Brahman. He he argues so. Then there is a different relationship. How Brahman is the first single principle? There, it's more immanence, or as they call, it, residence of, of Brahman within the individual soul. So, so these needs to be worked out in the book. So the first two parts are mostly about that. Then there is the idea of Upanishadic meditations, right? Uh, for Badrāyana, the Upanishads are really meditative texts. We, in scholarship, we tend to approach them, we kind of uh, read them in a documentary fashion, right? What do they tell about beliefs in ancient India, etc.? But for Badrāyana, they're simply texts on meditation, and they are very much like the ritual uh, parts of the Veda in that they present units that are counterparts to various rituals say the the Agnihotra, the Vedic ritual in which a Brahmin or someone in Brahminical society needs to offer milk three times a day, well uh, meditations on Brahman called Vidya, Upasana are like that, there are various kinds and all of that needs to be systematized and then the question of What what these meditations are about, what they are good for, needs to be settled. Are they all good for liberation, the the highest good, the attainment of Brahman, or not? So Badrāyāna has to develop criteria by which they can be classified, right? And then once he's made a set of meditations that are, in fact, about the attainment of Brahman, he needs to... Explain how do they lead to the highest good, right? Liberation from embodiment, and finally describe what that liberation might look like, right? Which is um striking. Uh his understanding of the highest good is might come, might seem to us striking and perhaps not necessarily how we might envision that, having sort of read. Uh, um, accounts from Advaita Vedanta or Sankhya or Yoga etc they are really closer to the Mimamsa side of things where the highest good is is closer to the idea of heaven right, which is a sort of uh, attaining a perpetual state of bliss that is very much active it's not uh, 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 of the kaivalya or isolation kind that is commonly known uh, um, from yoga and Advaita Sankhya. Um, yeah, something like that. Asana, and there's that
1: important point in there regarding, oh, we use the word text uh, for lack of a better word, but these, these works are uh, often self-conceived and conceived by tradition as more akin to sheet music, huh, more akin to something to be Used for, uh, applied in practice in some sense, that somehow uh, they are understood. Uh, that, you know, jnana or vid, uh, vidya, or that 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 knowledge, in this case, is it's more than information.
0: Indeed, right. yes.
1: And so there's that there's that gap, that fascinating tension between what we can know through academic inquiry, and and in the space we need to leave, even even as academics. Pertaining to how the texts describe themselves and 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 ways in which they might be, um, um, um they might be applied in tradition. So, uh, what prompted you to actually? I typically ask this question earlier, if not often, my first question. But what prompted you to write this work? What's the backstory behind this?
0: Oh, there is a, a long story.
1: <laughs> As oh, they
0: good. Purana. Indeed, yes. Uh, shall I start at the beginning or work my way back? First
1: creation uh, and then subsequent creations, all the kalpas, including everything you can. <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, so I've been reading the Upanishads since I was 16 or so. Uh, in First in Serbian translation uh, back in the old countries. I was always well, fascinated both by the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, I studied philosophy back home in, in Macedonia. Uh, but I, I, I sort of self-taught uh, or studied Sanskrit on my own before sort of coming coming to the US. But the Upanishads, the important point, have been with with me, well, more than thirty years now. Um, the the book itself, though. Uh, Resulted, well, first, the natural is in my doctoral dissertation at the University of Chicago, uh, where I wrote uh, a dissertation on the history of liberation uh, in early Advaita Vedanta. And by early Advaita Vedanta, I mean concluding with the, the late 10th century. And culminating with culminating with the idea of Mahavakya or these terse Upanishadic statements that are expressive of of, of uh, the final conclusion of the Upanishad. So there, I had a chapter. It was a relatively long dissertation, ten chapters or so. But there, I had a chapter. One chapter was on the uh, liberation scripture and the ideas of scripture and liberation in the Brahma Sutras, uh, chapter five, I think. Uh, so then that was completed in 2018. I put my dissertation somewhere on the web. Uh, uh, and then a colleague of mine, James Medea from the Czech uh, Academy of Sciences, as it happens, he read the the, the book and he was given editorship or uh, he was made a regional editor for South Asia of the Bloomsbury's just launched edition of, of, in, world, as they call, uh, uh, world philosophy, right. So then he came in, uh, I didn't know him before that, he, uh, he, he got in touch uh, having read the chapter uh, with a proposal to write an introduction based on that chapter, take the chapter as a starting point and then develop that into a book. And as it happens, when I finish the dissertation you know you you the next step is thinking about well how will the book look like from 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 the dissertation and one chapter that I really had no idea what to do with it seemed like a a misfit <laughs> in the dissertation was that on the Brahm sutras so then it conveniently the, the invitation conveniently came from from James and uh yeah, and then the rest, you know, you've 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 gone through that yourself. You got to write a book proposal, and someone's got to say, "Okay, this makes <laughs> sense."
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, I, I I lucked out in that. I ended up writing my thesis in a fairly accessible way, and I think I, I defended in twenty fifteen. And then I did nothing with it because I was trying to figure out the job market and sustaining myself. And then I, I think it came out. Rutledge 2018 but yes it's a journey it's certainly a journey yeah. um uh, and so I have the I like the idea of this misfit chapter yeah um I had so many uh I did a ton of writing I just I was a hermit with a desktop for mm-hmm. for about a year I did a ton of writing I came back to my advisor just like you have enough here for yeah. you know I'm I was reticent to show her a chapter and she probably thought like like most of us do uh the that the, is often the case that you know i was probably not writing <laughs> no. but i came back to her and she goes my god you've got enough for two dissertations so there were so many apocryphal chapters that's right that yeah. ended up being published in other places like i if we we both contributed to a to a to a, a volume a critical inter- introduction of the bhagavad-gita and mm-hmm. you know that was a, a a misfit idea misfit for what it's always relative but misfit for the dissertation that was something that was useful elsewhere so i'm glad that it turned out this misfit <laughs> chapter that became this highly accessible book um i had the good fortune of working with james madeo uh, we were both um uh, the uh, founding members of the course development board at the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies mm-hmm. to help to systematize the process and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and we both rotated off after about a year or so. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, lovely fellow. So um, and now I know who to who to approach for future book ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <indeed. laughs> no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm. I'm good. He's also
0: good in the journal, right? So that might be might be might be useful there too. <laughs> I think I have enough promise projects on my writing
1: roster for now. Um, 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 When a couple call, a colleague asked me, uh, they're like, you know, you don't have a, you don't have any, uh, how did did you put it? You don't have a a, a tenure committee to impress or anything like that. Why do you write so much? And I said to her, "Um, uh, I'm dying. We all are. (laughs) And (laughs) why not (laughs) do what you can while you're here? Um, having said that, perhaps sometimes I have too much on my writing plate. Is there anything else about the book that you hope to be touch on today?
0: Um, not sure. Um, <laughs> uh, the book has been out for now a few months. I think October, and I, I sometimes tell both myself and and the friends who ask me uh how I think about the the book now and uh, my my thinking is, gen- is generally I've I've done that. I'm ready to do something else. So it's no longer my problem. it's the world's problem, right it, the, the the world needs to figure out what they want to do with it, right I'm <laughs> I'm done with it <laughs> in that sense so uh, but then of course, um, uh, uh, projects like like your own good uh uh podcast comment, and then I, I, I I think about that again. so yeah, I genuinely don't know how to answer that question. Well, that's
1: fine. I mean, it, I think just about every podcast guest because by the time one finishes the book, it's some time before it's out in the world. Hmm. by the time we interview, the, they have to look back and remember what they wrote. And uh, the only time I really got this was the, the two times I did a flip interview. So, on mm. my both, on my monographs, I'm like, the heck did I write in that book? I better go back and remember what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's sort of you're over this project, it's out in the world, it's been brought to completion. So, perhaps a more apropos question then is um, do you have a sense of what's next or what you might be interested in researching down the road?
0: Oh yes, uh yes. Um yes, I, I have several projects in the in the works right now. Um I'm currently trying to finish up uh another long art project started perhaps over 10 years ago. It's just a a, a tiny paper uh, on the Gaudiya theologian Jiva Gosomin, what he calls learned perception of Vaidusha Pratyaksha which is really a form of yogic perception, uh, but can be um, developed into a very sophisticated theory of religious experience and the formative role of language, of culture, training, Uh, on what is seen in that experience. It's a theory that is impressively three or four centuries ahead of comparable intellectual developments in Europe and North America. So I'm trying to finish that. And relatedly, I'll be, I'll continue engaging with, with Chiva Goswami for two other projects that should and in some edited volumes. So uh, he's, he's not going anywhere. And then I need to write uh, a chapter on what's called the literature of ideas. It's another Bloomsbury project uh, uh, on cultural history of South Asian literature. And I'm supposed to write on the literature of ideas, but uh, in just in the antiquity. So I need to do that over the summer and I'm trying to think what that might involve and how how I need to conceptualize that. As you might imagine, it's a, a ton of material. So what should go in, what should, shouldn't go in, Etc. cetera. Um, then uh, with my colleague, Yulani uh, Tlevi-Shacham from the Tel Aviv University. I'm supposed to edit a volume on uh, uh, Vaishnavism as Fine Literature. That's a conference that we had about 10 months ago at Yale. Um, um So we now need to make a, an edited volume of that. So we are... Trying to finalize the uh, the book proposal and see what might happen uh, with it, um, and there I will uh, I will write a a piece on the origins of allegory in Sanskrit literature, sort of reading a couple of allegorical dramas, bits from Bhagavad Purana, Purana, et etc. And then when all of that is done, I have to go back to the dissertation, which, uh, as I said, I, I tackled the misfit chapter, but now I need to see how the rest uh, fits together. So I need to turn it into a book. And um, a- 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 as you said, you know, there are always some other projects or other reading that you've done when working on, on such a large project. So there might be a couple of papers. Mm, so- um, that might take me well into the, to, towards the end of the decade. So in other words, you don't have a whole lot on
1: your plate at all for the next, no, you know. No. And, and there seems to be a paucity of, of of interest in continuing research in this area. No, no, it sounds like you have plenty to work on. Um, yeah,
0: you know? further down the line, I hope to do some translation work. Um, that's an intellectual activity that I enjoy enormously, and in a past life I've done I've done some of that I've done some translation from English and Sanskrit into Macedonian uh, but, oh. but 10 years now it hasn't been much time to do that and uh, mm. i like to be I'd like to come to a position where I can afford to do that right. um, <laughs> because it's it's something that I I really enjoyed for me that's the best meditation and I've tried meditating in various ways through the through the years the only way that I can properly focus on doing <laughs> something is translation work so well it's it's
1: it's 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 really interesting different people have different temperaments and it's just a question of occupying the mind that's most active so for intellectuals occupy the intellectual mind with something uh, and then uh, I mean I remember Patrick Olivelle on the podcast saying that he did- he could do the painstaking philological work that he does, yeah, while he's watching the news, <laughs> <laughs> or, or or certain types of work. He was saying, but but in terms of transcribing, um, uh, digitizing texts, that's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, great. Well, translating is something that I'm. I'm currently translating the the Devi mahatmya for hmm. for a new a new audience I suppose um but it's sort of like I try to think of okay what's new what haven't I tried before hmm. right so anyhow when any of these projects uh come to fruition the collected volume the trend, what have you I know a guy who hosts a <laughs> podcast in Indian relations <laughs> I might so feel see free to that circle that again
0: yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm told he's user friendly so you should be okay. Um, I'm sure, yeah. Thank you for being on
0: the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Arch. It's a, a wonderful opportunity to talk to you. Likewise. For
1: those listening, we have been talking about um, a very accessible, user-friendly, uh, learning, teaching-oriented introduction to an absolutely foundational uh um, work of philosophy theology in ancient india Um, the 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 book of course it's called the philosophy of the brahma sutra Uh, an introduction it is um by bloomsbury all the details are in the podcast notes as usual Uh, until next time keep well keep listening keep reading and keep contemplating um in philosophy theology take care